On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. There is no It's a surprise, you know, is what it is. All these years down the line, when, when you suddenly, 25 years later, you realize that the thing has become a standard to some extent. Uh, Ride My Seesaw is really about me growing up uh, and tr- trying to relate. I'm Denny Somak, and this is The Rock Podcast. I want to introduce my co-host, Anita Gevinson. Hey, Denny. How you doing? Great. How are you? Okay. A little bit different this week. I was going through the uh, archives, and I found an interview with Roger Waters that was done uh, back in 1990, right around the time that he did the first wall concert when the Berlin Wall had come down. And I remember I was over there covering it um, and we did this interview and actually I, my, I have a, had a British correspondent, Mal uh, at the time, and he's actually the one that's on the interview three weeks before the concert. So it's like being a fly on the wall. You get to hear exactly, he's still planning what he's going to do. And of course that concert has since come out on DVD and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people attended and it was pretty amazing. Um, but you know, I was thinking, and we were talking earlier, you want to explain what the Berlin wall was? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, the Berlin wall was finally, uh, I think eight months before this came out, it was finally deconstructed, but it had been around since the 60s and it divided the country. And uh, it was just, you know, we talk about the wall today uh, and we kind of joke about it, but this this was just so awful. And you know, ideologically, it, it, it divided the, the country as well. And this was a guarded wall. I mean, this, you know, families were torn apart and uh, it was a huge deal when it came down. And I believe that um, Roger Waters said he would never perform the wall. Yeah. So that's what was part of his motivation uh, for this very ambitious product, uh, the live concert. The uh, guest artist, because he was the only member of Pink Floyd in Berlin, uh, 21st of July, 1990, I can't imagine where I was during this, but I was, I don't remember any, mm. I know I had just recently moved to LA. So that, right. that, you know, I was probably trying to decipher the cure from, you know, other, you know, who the cure, you know, right. learning new bands and right. <laughs> having a new life out in LA, but I had no idea that this happened at all, mm. but thanks to YouTube and yeah. a sweet apple gummy. Right. I was just there. I watched the whole thing. Uh, and, and Van I, Morrison does partially steal the show. Van Morrison is incredible. Um, he does. There are moments. Does yeah, there are moments in the show that that I, I need to watch over and over again. There, you know, uh, without even knowing about them a week ago, it's, it, they become some of my favorite moments. Joni Mitchell is incredible. Uh, Sinead O'Connor. Well, Sinead O'Connor, you can see that there was uh, the beginnings of what unfortunately has has plagued her uh, Mm. through the years, uh, definitely uh, has some uh, real problems, but man... She does a, a a mother. She 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 does a thing with mother that like hmm. it, she make not when they say you know people make it their own. It's kind of yeah. like you know Paula Abdul I think coined that phrase, but right. she really does. And during the show itself, there was a, a full stage blackout, hmm. um, and so uh, they wanted her to do it over, and she refused. I think Roger Waters called her the most difficult person he ever had to work with ever. Uh, so they used the rehearsal footage, Rick Danko and uh, uh, 
members of the members of the band yes yes Hudson, he plays, yeah he plays sax he plays yeah. accordion um yeah it's it's really uh it's unbelievable leave on helm yeah it, so i suggest you know you know edible optional i suggest right. everybody uh checks this out because this was a major major thing and i can't believe you were there that's so cool yeah and originally uh peter gabriel was going to be on and springsteen and clapton but that didn't happen. Even Rod Stewart was uh, rumored for a while. Uh, but obviously, you know, it turned out, okay, Van Morrison, Sinead O'Connor, Cindy Lauper, as you mentioned, Marianne Faithful, Thomas Dolby looking Thomas crazy Dolby. as shit, man. You should, D- Thomas Dolby. I don't know what he was thinking. You know, it was, I guess, you know, it, it was still the eighties really, yeah, you know, yeah. Jerry Hall, Tim Curry. It, <laughs> there's a side to the whole thing. That's very uh, Rocky horror. Let me set this up. First of all, uh, it, while I was going through the interview, I, I got, got a call from John, John Lodge of the Moody blues. He wanted to fill us in on what he's, he's got a new single out, a new uh, EP. So we talked to him. So you'll hear that after Roger Waters. And then I, I heard from Gary Brooker of Procol Harum, who has a new, uh, a new EP out also. And it's a return to the classic, Procol Harum sound. So we're going to hear from both of those guys uh, right after we hear from Roger. But let me set this up. So we're in Roger's warehouse somewhere outside of London. And I'm looking around and there's all these boxes. And I lean over and I say, well, what's in all these boxes? And he goes, well, these are all the cells that uh, from the wall, the movie, the Gerard scarf drawings that the cartoon was made of. I thought, wow, that's amazing. Boxes and boxes of them. They're all sitting there. So maybe someday he'll sell them off. I don't know. Yeah, for you, that's like uh, Keith Richards finding uh, cocaine or heroin in, <laughs> in a warehouse. Yeah. That, that's your drug of choice right there. So right. did you like, tell him how what he should do with them? Or did, No, no. He, okay. uh, he, I don't know if you've ever met him, but he's not, not the easiest guy in the world to, to have a conversation with. He's all uh, business and... You know, but anyway, this interview is 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 a gem. So let's get into this. This is our interview with Roger Waters. Uh, I think it was the last week of June in 1990, right before that concert. So here here it is. Just under a month's time, you will be staging what I think you could say is one of the most extravagant, uh, well thought out productions, live productions that we've ever seen. It's an open air concert in Berlin, right on the wall. What are your feelings about it now? I mean, it's a conceptual idea that's now in the making, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm too busy to think about it now. I just get up in the morning and start work. And when I'm too tired to go any longer, I go to bed and get some sleep. And then I get up in the morning and start work again. And most of the work, unfortunately, is being on the telephone or attending meetings, you know, uh, I'm very happy to say that on Tuesday I start rehearsing again, <laughs> which is great. Now, I've been down to those rehearsals, uh, fortunate enough to just poke my head around the door for half an hour, and I've been listening to you playing with some superb musicians, people who are no strangers to you either. You've actually worked with the likes of Annie Fairweather Low and, and so on before. T- tell us a little bit about the musical side of the wall performance that you're, you're doing in Berlin. Well, as you mentioned, I'm working with musicians who I've worked with before. There are seven of us. And we rehearsed um, a month ago. We finished a month ago. Uh, Learned all the songs, worked out how to do it all, worked out all the lengths and timings. And Because uh, as this is going out live TV... Sorry. In England, we know we're going out live network TV on, on July the 21st in the evening. Uh, I don't know if a deal's been struck in America yet, so I don't know... Um, where people will be able to see the show. Um, so, But because it's live, we have to know how long it's going to be and how long things are going to last and, uh, and so on and so forth. And so um, the show is being uh, uh, run off a multi-track tape recorder and off Simpty Code. So we're working to clicks most of the time so that what we play is in sync, A, with the visual effects, and uh, B... Uh, it means that the guy who's directing, the, or the three guys who are directing the television show, um, know exactly when to put in special effects that we've recorded beforehand and that kind of thing. Um, but it's the band that I've mentioned, and uh, we now have confirmed uh, 
the symphony orchestra, which is an East Berlin symphony orchestra and chorus. When I saw the show uh, that you did at Earl's Court, I think in, in 85, it was the last time that you performed The Wall. 81. 81, right. 1981 you performed The Wall at yeah. Earl's Court. And that was the last time, I think you did it in Britain, indeed, possibly, the last time you ever performed it. Yeah. Um, you were confined theatrically by the building, the the actual measurements of Earl's Court Arena prohibited yeah. you from building a bigger wall or from having this or having that. This time around, uh, you've had the freedom to expand the thoughts that you've always had for this performance and, yeah. and go crazy. Well, hardly, because I'm, I'm prohibited by a, a very, very tight budget. You mentioned that it was an extravagant show. I guess in one sense it is. It's very expensive to put on and it's very large and it's... In, in the ideas that involve the wall that we're building is 200 yards wide and six stories high. Uh, but there's nothing extravagant about it. We're fighting for every penny. And uh, there are budget meetings twice a week. And if we start going over budget in one area, we have to find it in another area. Because at the end of the day, it's being, the show is being promoted by the Memorial Fund and uh, we're trying to make some money for them and to raise awareness about the memorial fund. And so we have to be very careful what we spend. Um, when you finished performing The Wall, I-, I imagine that was the last time you ever thought you would do it again. Here yeah. you are again in 1990, the beginning of a decade, uh, bringing all that back into the present. Yeah. Why? Why? Is it because this particular charity has inspired you to... Well, make- I... I did, a, I did an interview about the making of the album a t- couple of years ago. I can't remember the radio station. It's a station out of Texas, anyway. Uh, about the making of the album. At the end of it, he said, will you ever do the show again? And I said, nope. And he said, ah, oh, come on, lots of people love it. And I said, well, that's difficult. Indoors, it's uneconomic, and as it's an attack on stadium rock, in, to a certain extent, anyway. And my uh, dis- disenchantment with that... that um, Activity. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't really go and, and do that again. And and I said at the end of the interview, I, I might put it on in Berlin outdoors as an act of celebration uh, when they tear down the, the Berlin Wall. And uh, I confess, I thought that was probably ten years away, and that everybody would have forgotten. But in fact, but it it had actually happened. It actually happened eighteen months after I did that eight interview, much to my surprise, and I think everybody else's as well. And uh, people had heard this interview, and it had been reported, and I'd already been approached by Leonard uh, in September. The wall didn't come down until November the ninth, and in September they'd come and approached me and asked if I might be prepared to put it on. So we were looking at other venues and ways that we could possibly do it, but we were f- we were floundering a bit. And then when the wall came down in Berlin, we, we, went, we flew out the next day and had a look at sites, and that was it. Putting this show on in, in Berlin, or anywhere for that matter, an open-air performance of this type, with, you were mentioning you have um, an orchestra, mm-hmm. but did you mention uh, the East German Orchestra? Yeah, um, East Berlin Symphony East Berlin. Orchestra. Yourself, your musicians, you've got balloons, uh, dirigibles... Uh, tell us all the, the theatrical things that are going on. It's incredible, this event, isn't it? Well, I, I, I think the only dirigible will, will, you know, will be a blimp with a camera in it. It won't be actually taking part in the show. Mm. Um, we have now had confirmation from Whitehall that we can use two Lynx helicopters from the 7th Airborne British Army Airborne Division for uh, the beginning of another Brick Two. So that finally the helicopters before you yes you stand still and it will be real ones instead of uh, just on tape. Um, I'm still desperately trying to get permission to fly B-17s oversight at the beginning of the show, but that I confess is looking increasingly doubtful. Where will they come from? The Confederate Air Force or someone like that? Well, no. There's one in France and there's one in England. In fact, mm. they, were, they were both uh, B-17s that were used in the making of the Memphis Bell. Mm. Um, but they're very expensive because, you know, they insist on a crew of six and they cost so much to fly here and that and that. You know, for a 30-second fly past, it would cost about 30 grand by the end of the day. So, you know, in a way, I'm hoping the permission doesn't come through because then we can use that 30,000 for something else. Uh, and you know, it's at least prompted me to put the sound of those Second World War uh, four-engine bomber the sound of the engines is in fact what's really 
gets to you, you know, even if you close your eyes. When, you, when one flies by, even if you close your eyes, you still get it, you know, because it's that sound of those piston engines. It's, and the vibration. And the, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so there's that. Um, these, the, the Russians the, have, um, are providing us with... Um, it's called the... Combined, no, it's called the Combined Soviet... The Marching Band of the Combined Soviet Forces in Germany. There's a hundred of them. They have now got the music and they've got their parts. We've sent them their parts and I should be going to see them the week after next to see if they've learnt it or not. Um, uh, what Who's else? singing Another Brick in the Wall? That is under wraps. In fact, I don't know. It could be one of about four different people or maybe even sets of people. Because for the album you used a school choir, didn't you? Very English, very rural well, type I'm, of... I'm trying to get the choir from the school over there, from the same school as the ones who did the original one, which is Islington Green's Junior School. Uh, and how that's coming on, I don't know, because I set it in motion about three weeks ago, and I haven't asked them, because I haven't got time. You know, this, you know that's one thing I've said, OK, look, you go to Islington Green Junior School and try and get 30 kids who are like it's like 10 years on and I also suggested to them why don't you try and find out what's happened to the ones who were there they're all 20 now 2021 right. you know where are they now it's rather an interesting could, story it is isn't it you know and whether and they, what do they think and they you know they've they've lived through the 80s from the age of 10 or 11 to the age of 2021 be interesting to hear what mm. you know and what did they think of that then and you know all that it's, that's so whether anybody's done anything I've no idea aside from the uh, theatrical aspect of the show, the bands, the aeroplanes overflying the site, etc., and mm. the building of this enormous stage. Mm. You've also had the logistical um, problems of dealing with not one government, but two governments, because effectively Berlin, although its wall is being knocked down, it's still, it, it, it is um, still a divided city. There are two councils and two governments and so on. Yeah. How have you gotten on with that as- aspect of cooperation from both the East Berliners as well as, of course, the, uh, the West Berlin government where you're actually performing the show well don't forget West Berlin is West Berlin is also a got an occupying force of the French, the Americans and the English and the Russians mm. well the French, the Americans and the English in West Berlin and the Russians come in still once a day in a, in a bus to um, uh, to provide a ceremonial guard for the Russian war memorial which is in West Berlin so it's a very strange situation, and it's unlike any other city in the world, but it does have its own local government. And I have to say that on both sides, they've been unbelievably cooperative. I mean, it, nevertheless, it still took five months to get per- official permission through to be allowed to go ahead to do the show. Our, our original date for ju- doing, doing the show was June the 2nd, and we had to put it back over six weeks because... We didn't get the permission, and therefore we passed our fail-safe point. Uh, but they've been very, very cooperative. Physically, the site where you're performing the show is near the Brandenburg Gate, Potsdamer Platz, and yeah. the, near the site of uh, the, the bunker that Hitler spent his last hours in before well, the... It's audience. on it. Yeah. Well, I, I say it's on it. The bunker is in the, in the area that the audience occupies. So uh, if if you if you come to the show when you arrive there if you're early you should you'll see there's a mound which I think will be the best seat in the house and that's the entrance to the bunker. Funny, it's something unique about the site as well is that um, when I was in Berlin um, and I came over for the press conference as you know um, to announce and launch the event. Um, it seemed to me as if you had just awoken an area where time had stood still for the last two decades. They had cemented over concreted and covered over history and uh, nobody was ever as far as they were concerned ever going to go back there and dig it up again well we've dug the whole thing up we had to because it's there's lots of bombs and stuff and and so it's all been uh it's it's all been uh, dug down to five um five meters and they figure anything further than five metres down is not going to get disturbed to to the point where it might get dangerous after 45 years. And uh, we unearthed a new bunker two weeks ago, which is a pretty strange place, which was uh, an SS SS kind of living quarters, guardhouse place that had all kinds of weird SS murals all over the walls and rooms full of anti-tank ammunition and stuff. It's a very spooky uh, place to be, but... uh, 
maybe we can lay a few ghosts with the performance of this work there and the fact that on site there will be West Germans and East Germans and Dutch and French and Italians and Englishmen and Americans and Japanese and Australians and I mean we're selling tickets everywhere Do you think the authorities both East and West see this as a a sort of celebration are they have they if you like endorsed this and and braced this as a, a, a celebration for themselves as well the people of Berlin well I hope so and I and I certainly think so yeah because it would have been very easy for them to just go no right from the very outset and they didn't um, we had a few hiccups but I, I think they're very pleased that it's happening uh, because all that news that's coming out of Germany at the moment, you know, in terms of the negotiations vis-à-vis reunification and, uh, and uh, all the economic plans that are being made and things, uh, I think this maybe gives some of it a, a different focus that is useful to all of them, to the East Germans and West Germans. And in no sense is it meant to be a celebration of... Uh, of um, a victory of, of uh, capitalism over socialism because it isn't and, and certainly that's not how I see it and I'm glad to see that when I, as I watch my TV set from time to time these days that that's beginning to come out now that that's not what's going on in Eastern Europe and that they're very uh, proud of quite a lot of the social programs that they developed having said that obviously you know they weren't very keen on living under the you know the heel of that of a, of a non-democracy and totalitarian government like they had to. When this show's over uh, and you regain your composure and your strength after the exhaustions of what is a, a fantastic uh, project, the charity will go on yep. and uh, raise valuable funds. What will Roger Waters be doing career-wise? Well, I'm, I'm in the middle of, a, of another album. I've got th- not thousands. I've got tens of songs um, and I think I'm getting quite close to finishing the next album uh, in fact I think it's very nearly finished now but I should probably start work on that again in the fall, in the autumn and uh, maybe finish it by Christmas, maybe put it out next year, I don't know, maybe tour maybe not, we'll have to see You've dealt with different uh, subjects in the last two albums, the pros and cons of hitchhiking mm. and Radio Chaos mm. um, where are we going this time? Have you an idea? Is there a conceptual idea this time or not? Well, they all seem to be, most of the songs seem to be about TV, either directly or peripherally. I got very involved in the idea of, a couple of years ago, I got very involved in the idea of foreign policy as entertainment. Um, and a couple of songs are about that. And uh, I found I've written some songs about, I don't know, there's one song about women and the making of promo videos and there's another song about what else are there songs about religion and TV all sorts of things so you won't be wanting your MTV I've never been a great supporter of MTV in fact I've never supported it at all Mm. I I think the format is all wrong interestingly enough I read an article that not to that effect but that mentioned that fact in the Sunday Times only today as I was browsing through it this morning um, successful. That's the British Sunday Times, is it? Or yeah, the New yeah, Times? yeah, the English Sunday Times. Uh, it's talking about the last sort of 40 years of uh, rock and roll. Um, and successful as I've been, I find it very irritating as a format. Really? Individual pieces, short pieces of film set to music can be quite good, but it's the minute you put one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, they all turn into a sort of grey blur for me. I know it's not the same for everybody, well, which doesn't seem to happen on radio. It well, seems easier to listen to one song and then another and another. We'll look forward to the results of the new album next year. Uh, and any p- sort of closing thoughts on the war? It's only four weeks to go now. There's yep. a lot to be done. I know. I know you've done a lot already. Sort of final final thoughts on it about about the about the performance and your expectations personally. Um, no, I, I'm. I can only think details now. I'm just, you know, I, I, my brain now works on this detail for five minutes, and then I move on to that detail for five minutes, and then occasionally, but only in terms of uh, directing the show, do I get a chance, which I only get once a week, 
to, to, to call a meeting with the heads of all the creative departments who are taking part in the thing. And we get out the drawings of the model and the maps of the thing and we look how far we, how far we are, are we ahead with this and that and the other and how the graphics coming on and how the panny projector software coming along and are all the films done right, that's done okay. And then we go through the show yet again and say, okay, that fits. Now there's a strange area here where we need to plug a hole or we need to change this or do that or something else. And then I can take an overview, and that's extremely enjoyable, but most of it is just a grind. Well, I hope it becomes uh, an enjoyable grind, and we'll look for... We'll I think on the, on the day, on the day, it'll, it'll be unforgettable. I mean, and, uh, I think most of the tickets have been sold now, but for the people who are there, I, it'll be uh, something else. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Okay. So we had, like, a, a personal connection with a couple of the people that appeared on stage uh, yeah, yeah i was shocked to see the hooters because you know denny and i are both from philly uh and hooters are a local band that i if you had told me if i was on millionaire and they said which one of these <laughs> bands performed with I, I would never have picked them but there they were babies at the time and uh they did a great job and i'm gonna have to talk to them and find out you know how that all happened you think you knew though right yeah, they were they were his friends, and also uh, even more surprising was the guitar player in Roger Waters' band, who does the David Gilmore uh, solo for Country Band. Was a guy named Rick DeFonzo, who we both know from another band out of Philly called the A's. Yeah, I had so no it was, idea. It was I amazing. Thought, I think I thought he was them. still playing at Dobbs, and there he was. <laughs> now you remember the Hooters also opened Live Aid. Yeah, that I knew, but you know so it was in they, Philly. They've had some pretty amazing billings. Yeah, yeah, it was anyway. in Philly. And then Cindy Lauper, of course, who had, he, yeah. she and Rob, you know, wrote time after time together. So I thought maybe that was the connection. Because well, Also the band, yeah, the, the Hooters back, uh, Rob and, and Eric, uh, two of the members of the Hooters, backed the band on their uh, reunion album. So well, I sort of think that go. might be where it came from. Well, it, it was it was thrilling to see them. So it, yeah. it was a really fun time. But we'll find out more when we have them on sometime. So anyway, I mentioned John Lodge of the Moody Blues, um, you know, the guy that wrote uh, well, Ride My Seesaw, Just a Singer in a Rock and Roll Band, Isn't Life Strange? A lot, a lot of the songs uh, along, you know, Justin is the other main writer, but uh, he uh, wrote a lot of the songs and sang a lot of them. And uh, I ran into him not too long ago. So he told me he was working on this. And I said, well, give me a call when when you're done, if you got something. So this is my conversation with him. And he explains a little bit about this, this new uh, song. This is John Lodge from the Moody Blues. Thank you for joining us, by the way. It's good to see you. Yeah, found it. Yeah, thank you. Now, you've got a, a, new, a new digital single coming out, or has been released, actually, The Sun Will Shine. Yeah. Uh, give me the story behind it, because I know you, 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 you've been working on it during the lockdown, right? Yeah, I, um, I finished my um, USA tour uh, 2020 in March the uh, 10th. It, up in Boston, I flew down to Naples to be with my family on my grandson's birthday. Never made the birthday because March the 12th, we locked down. So I have a home here, but um, didn't have a studio. I thought, what am I going to do? So uh, lockdown, Amazon came to the rescue. I bought basically uh, built a studio here, which I'm in now, uh, and started writing songs. I thought it's taking me back to living in my bedroom when I was 14, learning to play the guitar, you know, right. hour after hour. And uh, it was a bit like that, really. And uh, I wrote a song called um, In These Crazy Times, uh, on Garage Band, finished it, did it, all of it here, 
my microphone for singing is in the wardrobe and, you know, usual paraphernalia. And um, that was about me. And uh, it was about me and being locked down and suddenly realising everybody, everybody in the world basically <laughs> was in the same position and what would they be thinking as well. And um, I wrote a few more songs. I released that single last year and I was writing some more songs. And as I'm going through the lockdown, I thought, well, this can't last forever, you know. We've got to come out of this somehow. And uh, I started to think, when you come out, what will it be like? And I thought, it's not going to be the same as we went into the lockdown. It can't be. Uh, Too many things have happened. The most important thing when we come out of this lockdown is be positive, really be positive. Uh, And I related to to a new dawn, a new day. Uh, you know, the sun will shine, uh, will shine on everyone, will shine on me, uh, and it will shine, providing you have a positive attitude. Uh, and if you can have the ed- attitude, if you're happy, people feed feed off that as well. Tell me what you remember most about the making of Days of Future Past. Because that album almost that it it almost didn't get made, right? Didn't you have to you had to do some stuff for Decca before they'd let you record? Yeah, we did a lot of demos for Decca. We covered a lot of songs for them. Uh, what they wanted was a pop band that they had under contract uh, to re- take Dvorak's New World Symphony, take the uh, uh, melodies, and write new lyrics for it because they wanted a sampler album to show their new uh, full frequency recordings. So we made it, but we didn't do the Borjak. We used basically a stage show, which we'd been writing and rehearsing, and and we knew it worked. We knew the songs worked. Uh, But when we played it back to the record company, it was like, Oh, that's not what we want. They sort of really washed their hands of it. Until then, you had three-hour sessions in the studio, so 10 to 1, 2 to 5, and 6 to 9 type of thing. Mm-hmm. And we said to the record company, if you're going to do that, we want 24-hour lockdown. And I think it's the first time any artist had ever said that at a record company. And the head of uh, Decca Records, Sir, Sir uh, Edward Lewis, said, yeah, go for it. And uh, he gave us uh, 24 hours a day for seven days. And we made Days of Future Bus in those seven days on two four-track machines and a two-track machine. Nights in White Satin had came out, didn't really do anything the first time. It was then re-released what a, a, a couple of years later, and then it really exploded. Correct? Yeah, it it happened in Europe uh, first time round in France and Belgium, uh, um, but then again uh, the um, we released an album called Seventh Soldier uh, in seventy two seventy three. Uh, and on the back of that, uh, when that was out, uh, Nights to Want Saturn, Days of Future Past, and uh, just took, took off again. Tell me something about Ride My Seesaw. Uh, Ride My Seesaw is really about me growing up uh, and tr- trying to relate to world, late teenagers, early 20s, you come into everything you've been taught at school, everything is a great background, but it doesn't actually uh, launch you on a platform into real life. And that was Ride My Seesaw. Uh, and it's the first time um, I've been traveling around the world, meeting young people at the same age as me and discussing what their life was about and my life was about. And uh, you know, I think when you're like 22, 23, 20, well, all through your life, it's ups and downs. Your life goes up and down, uh, highs and lows. Bye.
major right i'm just a singer in a rock and roll band was it a specific incident yeah because people um you know at that time um a lot of the fans thought we do the answers to everything and uh i, I remember coming back from a tour uh and those people literally camping outside my house and i said uh you know, what you're doing is great, you know, but what you're doing is that uh, the world's going to be ending soon and we were told you'd fly the spaceship to rescue us all. I suddenly realised uh, I've got to put this in order and say, hey, I don't know anything. So I'm just a singer of a rock and roll band and I have no idea what's going on in the world. What, by the way, is the current status of the Moody Blues? You're on hold, or have you broken up, or on on hiatus? What's the story? We've still got Threshold Records, which we uh, are active in, obviously. But um, uh, uh, at this moment, you know, I'm a Moody Blue, always will be a Moody Blue. And that's why on the road, I'm playing all classic Moody Blues songs and paying tribute to uh, Mike Pinder on the road, Ray Thomas on the road and Justin on the road because these songs have been part of my life forever. But as far as the Moody Blues are concerned, you, Justin doesn't want to tour now uh, as, a Moody, as the Moody Blues. So that's his prerogative and, uh, yeah, so we're still all good friends and, uh, but that's what he doesn't want to do. So, uh, Tell me what it was like uh, the night you got inducted to the Hall of Fame. During the day, it was pretty chaotic, to be honest. Everybody wanted a piece of you. Uh, I really didn't know what... I knew what was going on, but it was like a marketplace in a way. But the thing what got to me was when I was actually on stage uh, being presented uh, with the award what got to me was I th- thinking because I had no prepared script at all I was just going to say what I thought uh, <clears throat> when they asked me before what you're going to say can we read your script first I said no, I don't work like that you'll get what I say I, I can't I can't write things down, it's rubbish. So I went on stage and I thought, hey, I know we got this award, but really the fans have made this for us as well. While I was thinking that, I said, my hero was Buddy Holly, always was Buddy Holly. And I was thinking to myself, here's Johnny Lodge from the council house in Birmingham, uh, Standing, I'll be standing next to Buddy Holly in the Hall of Fame. How good is that, you know? And I started to get a wry smile thinking about it. And then I thought, you know, something else which is fantastic. When my grandson grows up and he's married and children, they wander through the Hall of Fame and he's going, hey, that was, that was my granddad, you know? And I thought... Yeah, it means something. It means something. So that's uh, John Lodge, the Moody Blues, giving you an update on uh, on what he's up to. And just so you know, um, when I last saw him, uh, he was with his daughter, Emily, and she's dating John Davison, who's the current singer in Yes. So that's how he got to be the backup singer on this track that we that he's just released. And Emily, of course, is Emily from Emily's song. Uh, right. And 
you know, one of the best things for me about John Lodge is that he's been married to his wife, Kirsten, since 1968. So that's, you know, Uh, that's amazing. That is amazing. And um, he's got a son, Christian, and Christian played and his wife sang the backing vocals with John Davison and Emily Mm -hmm. managed the project. There you go. It's a family affair. Definitely a family affair. And it was good to catch up with them. The Moody's are one of my, my favorite bands. So, uh, and then, and then right after that, I, I got a note, a note from uh, Gary Brooker and he was releasing Gary Brooker's the legendary vocalist of Procol Harum. Of course, everybody knows whiter shade of pale. One of the yeah, they're one of my biggest songs bands. of all time. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and he also did three tours with the uh, Ringo stars, all-star band, He's just been on the scene forever. And I, I've seen Procol Harum a number of times. So uh, we talked about his new uh, EP and also what he's going to be doing. Uh, and of course, we talked about some classic songs. So uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, these three uh, these three interviews from the archives. So anyway, how you doing? Well, you know, I'm fine. I'm, I'm perfectly ready to have a little chat here. Okay. Now, where are you? Where are you in England? I'm in Gil- Guildford. Guildford, okay. Yeah. All right, good. 30 miles southwest of London. Right, okay. So yeah. uh, I got to tell you, I listened to the, uh, the the new EP. It's really got the classic Procol Harum sound. Uh, and I know you said that it's uh, it was written a few years ago. I mean, what's the genesis of it? Well, it's sort of the genesis of it works backwards in that well, it was actually the end of March now. I've been having a big clear out because... You know, we get, we're locked down here. We still are to a certain extent. Right. But lockdown, you you know, you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You can't go and see anybody. So you start going through your CDs. And then going through those, I found these two. I thought, well, that's, I was looking for that. I hadn't heard that. What's that like? Well, that was missing persons. And I put it on and it... It said a rough mix, but it sounded, well, it didn't sound, well, it's a very, very good rough mix. You know, I've ticked them well. The vocals sounded good. Um, everything seemed to be there, actually. And, you know, drum sound and everything. Uh, and, and the other one was next to it, the War is Not Healthy. And that sounded, oh, that's, that's a bit lively, you know. But I couldn't. I didn't really remember doing them, and I didn't. I couldn't figure out why they'd got to that stage, and that, and then got forgotten. Um, now, when I say they weren't very old, they weren't very old, but that's all a bit relative to how fast time goes by. Mm. But they were done. I know they were done prior to our. We had an album out called Novum, which we did in 2016, came out in 17, and. Um, I know these were before that. You used to play this live, right? In the 2014 tour. I, I, I saw you do it. Oh, yeah, well, I, didn't, I couldn't remember that. You don't remember doing it live? No, I don't remember doing well, it. Well, go, you, go to YouTube and you'll see it. Yeah. Well, I don't, don't remember recording it either. 2014, it says in New York, recorded. 2014. Live. Yeah. All right. Well, that was, uh, it was written before that. <laughs> Well, no, good information for you to know, right? Nobody else oh, uh, yes, caught that? <laughs> no, uh, no. I, I, well, I think if you look on the EP, it probably says made somewhere in time instead yeah. of a date. The point was, was that it sounded, well, these are Keith Reed's words as well. Right. It sounded like that it had been written for the, for the current situation a bit, uh, missing persons. I just, just thought it was very appropriate. I said, well, let's get this out. You know, we'll have the... Yeah, war is not healthy. That's always in, you know, that's always true, isn't it? Mm. So, um, so that's it. So we rushed it out, but you know, uh, you're scheduled to start touring in September. Is that definite, or is that still up in the air? Well, I've got to get over a couple of health problems. Once I get those out of the way, I'll know if I'll be here or not. Okay. <laughs> well, we hope it's nothing but, serious. Know, no. Uh, well, I'm, I'm still getting tested, so I don't quite know. Okay. But I hope everything's fine. Um, but it has caused us to, we have some, a couple of things coming up quite soon. And I know I won't be able to do them. You know, there's early July in, in mm-hmm. London and um, right. Estonia, I think, at the beginning of August. 
but we're holding the other ones at the moment. Did, did so you ever you, play in Estonia before? Yes, we've played there quite a few times. What's that like, playing in Estonia? It's a nice place. You know, it's a, there's three Baltic states. Right. I'm never sure what order, but at the top is Estonia. It's, it's more or less opposite Helsinki, across from Finland, across some sort of sea. don't know if it's Baltic Sea or not. Right. And um, they're very friendly there. We, we first went there quite a few years ago. Played at a festival, and, and they liked us. We we liked them, and, and I think we've been back four or five times since. I mean, I played there on my own once at a special deal with uh, mm. with an Estonian orchestra and, and choir. So they're, they're very keen on their music, and it's a nice place. They're nice people. So let me ask you: Are you a uh, are you a vinyl guy or a CD guy? Um, well, I, I've, I've still got my vinyl collection. What's in your vinyl collection? Oh, it's, it's priceless. Okay. It probably dates from 1967 to about 1970. Um, and I went to clear it out. It's got to be, I don't know how many feet, but it's got to be 30, 40, or 50 feet of linear vinyl. You know, so it's a lot of albums. It's a few thousand. Yeah. Them. It's a few thousand. But we actually moved for the first time a few, you know, four, five, six years ago. And I thought, right, I'll clear out my vinyl, you know, carting this lot around. Right. And um, so I thought I'd probably throw away half of them. And out of it, I have no, no idea how many are, but I, I sorted out 12 that I didn't want. And, and I think two of those were Keep Fit Records by Jane Fonda's. <laughs> Well, what are, what are your what are your what are your like top five classic vinyl records that you remember getting, playing? It's still sitting there. You may not have played it in a while, but if somebody said, you know, you can keep a few of these, but I'll buy the rest. Which what are they going to be? Well, the trouble is, it'd be three hundred of them. But I, I loved and still love Leo Kotke's first album, right? Which was I think called Six and Twelve String Guitar. Yeah. Uh, that was marvellous and still is mm-hmm. reading it it sounded like this guy had existed in about 1870 or something you see and I thought wow and then one day we're in Boston I'm walking past a club on a night off and I see him writes me oh cocky but he's dead I thought what so I went in and there he is the man himself playing all this stuff and uh, we became lifelong friends actually yeah. Anyway, he is definitely on my playlist. Well, it's a, most of them were great albums. Yeah. A lot of them were the first albums by people. A lot of them were quite rare, you know, like Blind Faith, their first and only album, I think. Right. Where there was a naked sort of 13-year-old or topless on the front holding an aircraft. Yes. That got actually banned. And so it didn't exist for very long, but I got it as soon as it came out. And I so I got that original one. I saw that. So I think you peeled this banana skin. There was a banana inside it. Andy Warhol, Warhol the Velvet Underground, I think. Right. And, you know, the Stones one with a zip on the front. Uh, was it Sticky Fingers? Could have yep. been. Right. Now, is it? Uh, it's true that you you made your debut in London at a concert that Brian Epstein promoted. Is that correct? You opened for Hendrix. And, uh... Oh yeah, I remember that now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what can you tell me about it? <laughs> Was that seeing Hendrix for the first time? Did you get? Oh to yeah. See him? Oh yeah. yeah. No, well, actually, prior to he he'd just been around for a month or two in London. And I, I did see him on the other side of the street once, and I just saw this thing. I will say thing because of what he was dressed like and what it looked like. Right. Some alien thing. And I thought, that must be Jimi Hendrix I've heard about. Uh, I hadn't heard him play a note yet. Before we played at this, and that was at the Savoy Theatre, I think, that gig you're mentioning. Yes. But we had played at a, a little club called the Speakeasy just to work out our repertoire with Program. And Jimi Hendrix just... He got up and jammed with us. He took one look at Robin Trower and didn't fancy grabbing Robin's guitar off him. So he grabbed the bass off of Dave Knight. And of course, he was a, he's a left-handed Jimmy. 
So he, but he still played it wrong way around, upside down. Got a, but he played the bass with us, not a guitar. But he was, uh, he was fun. So we sort of knew him to say, you know, to talk to. Yeah. And it was nice to play with him at this one here. It was the first time I'd seen him in his own situation. He had decided that he was going to do Sergeant Pepper, mm-hmm. which, of course, had only just come out, like even that morning or something, you know. Um, and he hammered that out because he, well, he liked the Beatles and he liked that one, and he, he did a great version of it. Was that the show? I don't even know if you're aware, but is that that's the show where Hendrix played Sgt. Pepper and it had only been out for a few days, right? Yes. yes. Well, John and Paul were, and George were in the audience. You aware of that? Oh, no, I didn't remember them. Yeah, in fact, George... Back, I didn't see them backstage. George, uh, well, I don't, I don't know if they would have gone backstage or not, but George actually, years later, because I talked to him about it, he did, you know, the record had just come out and they saw Hendrix and they go, oh, we've we, we got to recall the record and redo it. <laughs> and Brian said, no, 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 it's too late, it's out. <laughs> yeah, it was probably a very, very top concert to go to on the day. Yeah. yeah. Because you got Jimmy Hendrix, you got Procol Harmon who just popped out of nowhere and, and got a number one record. So let me talk to you. Uh, okay, so you, you played in a couple of Ringo Starr's all-star bands, correct? Yes, yeah. yeah. How did that come about? So we, you know, he asked me to do it. I said, who else is in it, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm no, no disrespect, because Ringo's a lovely man. But, it, you know, you just think, well, who else? I, I knew that he did these things, and he had lots of different people. And this particular one, he was basing it, I think, on a British thing. Right. Uh, so it, it was all Brits. Of course, he's British. <laughs> And then so was Jack Bruce, so was uh, Simon Kirk on the drums, so was Peter Frampton and myself. So that was uh, that was his kind of British tour, and we right. did it in America. Yeah. Uh, but it was uh, it was great. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, I stayed with him actually. He did it over about three years. Wow. Did two more tours. Did you ever play with any of the other Beatles? Only George Harrison and Paul McCartney, not with John Lennon. Right. Yeah, with George, were you on uh, All Things Must Pass? Yeah. Yeah. What did you play on? What, what, do you remember what you played on that? Well, I was playing the piano, and I get mixed up. Is that his first album? Yes. The three, I was three, on... Uh, three records set. Yeah. Wah Wah and My Sweet Lord. I remember doing those. Right. Let's talk about some of the classic uh, Procol Harum tunes and albums. A Salty Dog, which is definitely a little bit of a change from the first album. I think we'd started to feel our way a bit more as a Procol Harum band, as, you know, in fact, people liked us, and people were listening to our music. So the part time we did A Salty Dog, we knew that people were actually listening to us and wanted to hear us and wanted to come and see us. And that gives you, of course, a lot of confidence and a lot of justification to keep going, you know. But we're still trying to do different things, you know. I think the most different thing on there probably was doing one, as in the title song, which um, was just used as string orchestra. Very little Procol Harum band in it, except for B.J. Wilson's magnificent drum intro. But apart from that, it was just piano and, and, and string orchestra and, really? and the vocal. Where did you meet Keith Reed? Way back 1966, we had a mutual friend whose name was Guy Stevens, called Rest His Soul. But he one day introduced me around his place to, to Keith Reed. He said, well, Gary, this is Keith. He writes words. Keith, this is Gary. He writes music. We, we, we got along fine. He gave me a packet of lyrics, which I took home and forgot about, but found them a couple of months later. 
I just read through them and, and I wrote some songs to them. I thought they were intriguing, his, his lyrics, and I, and I wrote some songs. And then we got together and he liked what I'd done and, and we, we were off. Okay, so it's uh, it was right around this time, May 12th, I believe, uh, in 1967, that A Whiter Shade of Pale came out. Yeah. And uh, did the lyrics come first or the music? Well, like many of our songs that Keith and I wrote, it was uh, neither one thing nor the other. I was actually sitting at home working on this musical idea. It was in the morning, nothing, you know, smoky or dark about it. It was in the morning and... I've been working. I thought, this is a good idea I've got here. It had a bit of bark-like, and then it got into this cycle going round and round with the cause, and I'm humming and hawing over it, and it's working fine, you know, as an idea. And then the postman came, and I opened up my mail, and there's a, an envelope from Keith. And the first thing I took out was this, what looked like an enormously long, his lyrics, his prose, whatever it's called, and um, when I put it on the piano, I started singing it. And my, my musical idea was just as long as his uh, lyrical idea was. So there was no... I didn't get to the end of my song halfway through his lyric, halfway through his verse. It, it went right through and they both sat there very nicely together. But it was quite organic. And now it's one of the biggest selling singles of all time. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You think so? Okay. Very played. with the lawsuit over Whiter Shade of Pale? Because originally you won, it got overturned, and then it got overturned again. Well, that's it. You know, that's where we are. That's where we are now. You know, that was, to me, a long time ago. It's in the past. And um, I just look forward, really. Okay. So I just met there's certain people I don't talk to. Okay. Most of them are lawyers. <laughs> well, listen. I want to. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. Wish you a lot of luck. This is a, you know, a great sounding EP. You're back to the Procol Harum sound that we all love. I've seen you many times over the years. Good luck with the with the new EP. I hope you uh, your health uh, is fine so that you go out and yeah. tour and we get to see you again. And I don't mean in Estonia. I mean in the United States. Oh yeah, we're, we're, we'll be back. We're, we're alive forever, so we'll be there. Okay, Gary Brooker, thank you very much. Thank, Appreciate it. Thank you, Danny. Right. Bye. This is The Rock Podcast. And if you want to get in touch with us, we have a Facebook page. We're on Instagram. We have a website at therockpodcast.com. Or you can send us an email, hello at therockpodcast.com. We read everything and we uh, enjoy hearing from you. So Yeah, we'll get back to you. Yeah. Follow we, us. We take some suggestions. Guy. Sending, we're going to do something. Guy wanted to rush. Believe me, I'm going through the, the archives. I've got plenty of rush, but we'll get to it. So any t- anything you want to recommend, please feel free. Anyway, that's Somebody it for said me. little feet. Somebody said little feet. Okay. We'll get to we'll it. We'll look into it. We'll look into it. All right, everybody. <laughs> Bye-bye. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. 
I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.